Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 363 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Laura Barnett unpacks the myth that writing needs lots of time and explores the focusing effect that external demands can have on the creative process. Then, Ros Schwartz explores recent initiatives by the community of translators and by committed independent publishers that have transformed the publication of literature in translation. First, here's Laura Barnett with Time and the Writer. Before I had my son Caleb in February 2020, I was terrified of many things. Childbirth, naturally. That something might go wrong for me or for him as a result of one of the many complications I'd endured through my pregnancy. That my husband and I would never sleep again. That we would have no idea how to look after this baby and would end up doing something horribly, horribly wrong. But near the top of this list of fears was another one more personal, perhaps even more deeply rooted. The fear of losing time. The fear of never, for the rest of my life, finding another moment to write a word. For a writer becoming a mother, or facing any other kind of major life change, this fear is real. When you earn your living by writing, and by teaching or talking about writing, precariousness is woven into the fabric of your life. So many things can go wrong. Illness, poor sales, fickle publishers, agents changing career, writer's block, that bogey monster we all try to pretend doesn't exist. The time myself was convinced didn't exist, until it came and sat on my keyboard for months on end, telling me that every word I wrote was rubbish, utterly hackneyed and meaningless. And then there's the question of time. The commodity that almost all of us feel we lack, and yet spend profligately phone-scrolling and watching TV, like problem gamblers transfixed by slot machines, losing pennies by the minute. As writers, we tell ourselves, we need time. We need reams of the stuff, luxuriant hours with nothing to do but sit at our computer and think, and write, and edit, and stare, and read, and do all the things we writers have to do to get a book, script, screenplay or poem out of our heads and onto the page. This, anyway, is what many of us think we need. I hear it all the time from the many emerging writers I teach and mentor. I really want to finish my novel, many of them say, but I'm so busy, I just don't have time. They tell me that things will be different when their kids start school, or when they retire, or when they move to an isolated cave on a Hebridean island. Then they'll have time to write, they say. Then they'll get their book finished. I used to think this way too, and I'm here today, on the other side of motherhood, with a toddler, three teaching jobs, three novels on the go, a house that's basically falling to bits, and a million other demands on my time, to reassure other writers, and my own fearful past self, that this idea is absolutely false. We do not need reams of time to write. If we have this, it is a rare luxury that, I am about to suggest, is all too easy to squander. 
What we need, instead of large quantities of time, is high quality. Regular portions of time, however small, that we carve out of our day, eliminating all other distractions to sit alone in a room putting words on a page. To illustrate my point, allow me to offer you a briefish history of my own relationship with writing time. As for many other writers, my desire to write started young. The first thing I can remember writing is a poem about a sunset over the Thames, scribbled on a napkin in a waiting room in St Thomas's Hospital when I was five years old. I can still recall the sense of urgency I felt then, grabbing my mum's arm, asking if she had anything I could write on, because I just had to put this view down on paper before it disappeared. It was a wonderful feeling, a kind of conjuring trick, the first time I experienced the magic of capturing a moment on the page. Time stilled. That excitement has never left me. That ability to ensnare a moment is still, more than three decades later, a large part of what I love most about writing. After that, I spent a lot of my time writing. And there was so much of it in childhood, wasn't there? Holidays, post-school afternoons, weekend mornings when my exhausted single mum was having a much-needed lion. Time was wide and abundant, an ocean to swim in. I wrote endlessly, poem after poem, story after story, presented in books hand-sewn by my mum. No wonder she was exhausted. As I grew older, life became busier, time more precious. There was homework to do, friends to meet. I learned to play the bass guitar very badly and formed an all-girl punk band, which soon took up most of my time. Writing was demoted. I still wanted to be a novelist and scribbled the odd story, but mainly I told myself I just didn't have time. The time would come later, I thought, when I'd finished school, when I was at university, after I'd graduated. At some point... A great big gaping hole of time would open up in my life and I would fill it with words. As for so many of us, my dream was of being a full-time author. Of having no other job, no other commitments, nothing standing in the way of doing what I loved. Just eight hours a day to write from Monday to Friday. Just like any other job, only one that I loved with every fibre of my being. For a very long time indeed, this was not my reality. In my 20s, I worked as a journalist, full-time, that phrase again. Writing was reduced to scraps and shavings, an evening a week perched on my bed, the words swimming before my eyes as I typed. A day at the weekend, perhaps, if I could tear myself away from the carefree fun apparently enjoyed by those not trying to write a novel alongside a demanding job. I got two novels written this way over about a decade and had a smattering of agent interest, but neither novel was published. I comforted myself with the idea that I hadn't really had the time to devote to making either book good enough. One day, when I had the time, I'd write a better, stronger novel. After I turned 30, I finally got real about this. It dawned on me that I was probably never going to have this mythical tranche of time, so I'd better get smart about using the time I did have. I decided that I would write my next novel in two hours a day, between the hours of 8 and 10am, five days a week. I was lucky that I worked from home and didn't have a commute, or, at that time, a child. So this worked for me. Over nine months, I completed a draft of what would become my first published novel, 
the versions of us. I had finally proven to myself that what really mattered was not the quantity of time at my disposal, but the quality and dedication with which I made use of it. Then came a new phase in my relationship with writing time. I found an amazing agent who got an auction going. The novel was optioned for television and sold in 26 countries. I could afford to stop working as a journalist. Suddenly, time opened up for me. I was there, a full-time writer, with nothing else in my diary but writing. My wildest dreams about being a novelist had come true. Now, please let me issue an important caveat at this point. I am fully aware of the privilege of this position, of how rare this is for any writer and how lucky I was to experience it. I am not in any way suggesting that this was anything but good fortune of the highest order. But here's the thing. This abundance of time wasn't good for me and it wasn't good for my writing. I got my second novel written, Greatest Hits, and I was proud of it. But after that, I foundered, lost my way. Time weighed heavily on me. I was alone for long hours, staring at a screen. I felt that I was no longer facing outwards towards the world, but inwards towards my own mind, and I didn't like what I was finding there. I found myself becoming not more productive, but less so. The more time I had to write, the less I seemed able to produce anything worth reading. This, then, was the paradox. The luxury of time was not, for me, productive or conducive to creativity. I had quantity, but not quality. So I began to fill my time, to find work teaching, to do some volunteering, to get out and re-engage with the world. Gradually, after several years without publishing anything, that need became financially pressing, too. I needed to do other work, and I wanted to do it. I needed a busier schedule in order to chip off again those slivers of productive time in which I might write something meaningful, something true. This is more or less where I was in 2020 when I had my baby. Life was busy and about to get busier, and guess what? It stayed that way. I'm busier than I probably ever could have imagined pre-baby, and certainly pre-pandemic, but my fear was unfounded. I haven't run out of time to write. I started writing again while I was on maternity leave, in lockdown, in brief, semi-delirious moments when my son was napping and I should have been napping too. I wrote an entire, admittedly short, novel and snatched hours while he was sleeping or at nursery, fitting them in around my other work, my other responsibilities. I did it. I'm a working mother and I'm busy, but I'm still a writer. Listening to this, you may be feeling that you're far busier than I am, with many more things filling your time, many more duties and anxieties. And perhaps you are, perhaps you do. For many people, even the tiniest scrap of time to write may seem a luxury, especially with the particular challenges we've all faced over the last year. And it is a luxury. But, as I always tell those emerging writers I work with, who feel they don't have enough time to devote to writing, it's there. It really is. Take 15 minutes a day to write if that's all you have. A play or a poem or a novel gets written word by word, sentence by sentence. Bird by bird, as the wonderful author Anne Lamott puts it in her book of the same name. You will get there. 
And like me, you might even find that the less time you have for writing, the more you prioritise the quality of time over the quantity, the better your writing is as a result. So take heart, all my fellow working parents or carers or night shift nurses or whatever it is you do in the hours in which you're not writing. There is always time. So take however much of it you can, use it well and wisely and enjoy this crazy, maddening, wonderful writing life. That was Laura Barnett, recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. You can find out more about Laura on her website at www.laura-barnett.co.uk. That's Barnett with two T's. Next, here's Roz Schwartz with Translators with Attitude. Once upon a time, translators were humble creatures waiting timidly in the background for crumbs from the publisher's table, grateful for any scraps thrown their way and certainly not being vociferous. When I began my career in the early 1980s, I used to champion French books I wanted to translate, only to be told by publishers, we don't do translations, as if translations were a genre. A small number of avant-garde houses built their reputations publishing international writing, Peter Owen, Marion Boyers, Harville, among others. But translated fiction was considered elitist, and there were numerous myths about foreign books, such as translations don't sell, or readers don't like books by people with unpronounceable names. Translations always read awkwardly. And so translated literature was consigned to a sort of ghetto. But things have changed radically. Mainstream houses are publishing translations and writers such as Elena Ferrante and Karl Uwe Gnauskaud are household names. Translators now have a seat at the table and are part of the conversation as well as leading the way in challenging the gatekeepers and spearheading bibliodiversity. So what changed and how? Recent years have seen the emergence of a strong and vibrant translation community with translators closely networked nationally and internationally and the main professional associations and literature organisations all working closely together. The Free Word Centre, which opened in London in 2009 and hosted the first International Translation Day, a key professional development event in the translator's calendar, has become a physical hub where the translation world gathers for training sessions and public events. This sense of community has been crucial in empowering translators to take an active role in working with publishers and arts organisations to increase the number of works of literature in translation and to promote them. It has also fostered training initiatives to develop a pool of excellent translators, resulting in a huge improvement in the quality of translated literature, which in turn boosts publishers' interest and reader demand. Although there is a growing appetite among publishers and readers for literature in different variants of English, this creates a false sense of diversity because only a small proportion of books published in the UK are translations, a mere 4%, compared with 20 to 40% in other European countries. Why is this? A 2011 study into the barriers to translated works among publishers and booksellers in the English-speaking world was carried out by the Global Translation Initiative, a joint international venture. This survey acted as a springboard for breaking down the barriers. 
Another milestone was the research published in 2015 by Literature Across Frontiers, based at Aberystwyth University, identifying the gaps, i.e. what is being translated and what isn't. The study found that 10 languages accounted for 70% of all translations published in the UK between 2000 and 2015, and that 9 out of the 10 most translated languages were European. Over the past 15 years, the concentration of both publishing and bookselling, compounded by the rise of online retailers, has made it a very tough environment for publishers of quality literary works. But despite this, a number of independent niche publishers passionate about translated literature have emerged, including translator-led and other stories, Fitzcarraldo, Les Fugitives, Pyrene Press, Cassava Republic with a focus on works by African writers, and Tilted Axis, set up by the winner of the first Man Booker International Prize, Deborah Smith, specifically to remedy the lack of books from South Asia published in the UK. These small committed houses have devised innovative models, subscription, literary salons, and selecting titles in consultation with reading groups, both physical and virtual thus creating an entire community around them, and their books are increasingly dominant on the translation prize shortlists. These indie publishers and their translators work closely together to produce and promote translations of the highest quality, and they have had some notable commercial and critical successes, often unforeseen, such as The Elegance of the Hedgehog by Muriel Barbary, translated by Alison Anderson and published by Gallic Books, giving the lie to the myth that translated books don't sell. The translation profession itself has been proactive in instigating peer training initiatives. The British Centre for Literary Translation Summer Schools, which I co-founded at Birkbeck and City University in London, Warwick and this year at the University of Bristol workshops at the Society of Authors and the expanding mentoring scheme under the auspices of the National Centre for Writing. Practising translators work with a number of national and local arts organisations, book festivals, libraries and reading groups and educational organisations that place translators in schools. A flagship project is the translator initiative Shadow Heroes, which runs series of creative translation workshops for secondary schools and universities. The workshops have three central aims, to show how working with translation in its widest sense can help students to become better critical thinkers, to reshape language learning in socially inclusive ways, and to reinstill the fun, variety and relevance of learning and working with languages through translation. Translators are active, inventive and visible, and translation events have become crowd pullers. The International Literature Strand at the prestigious Edinburgh Book Festival features writers from over 50 countries with individual events attracting audiences of over 200. Translation duels, where two translators who have worked on the same text confront each other before an audience and are challenged by a moderator to explain their choices, give readers unique insights into the translation process and always go down well with the reading public. The Literary Translation Centre at the London Book Fair, launched in 2010, has become a major draw, attracting large audiences at this key industry event, along with the English Pen Salon, which also turns the spotlight on international writers in translation. Speaking of English Pen, there is a political dimension to translators' work. 
Through our contacts on the ground, we're able to bring the work of persecuted and silenced writers overseas to the attention of publishers. The Pen Translates funding programme, supported by the Arts Council of England, is one example of the way translations of quality writing, which might not otherwise see the light of day, can receive financial support. In my role as co-chair of the awards panel, I see numerous applications from publishers and often they state that the book for which they are seeking funding was brought to them by the translator. Support for translation and the promotion of bibliodiversity, a term coined by Chilean publishers in the 1990s and which needs to be actively fostered, not only comes in the form of direct funding programmes. The Norwegian government, for instance, has a policy of buying 500 copies of around 120 translated works each year, all genres, and placing them in public libraries. In a country with a limited market, i.e. the number of Norwegian speakers in the world, this encourages publishers to take on works that would probably not be financially viable without the support. It is also a means of assisting public libraries and giving readers access to international writing, which the Norwegians couch in terms of a citizen's right to read works of world literature in their own language. Today, there is a growing community of emerging translators bringing fresh energy and ideas to the scene, encouraged by the National Centre for Writing's Mentorship Programme, the annual Harville Secker Young Translators Prize, the British Library's Translator in Residence Programme, and peer-led events at International Translation Day and on the eve of the London Book Fair. Meanwhile, the Emerging Translators Online Network brings together and nurtures this new talent with the support of veteran colleagues. To challenge the gatekeepers and bring international writing to the attention of often monolingual publishers, translators have a vital role to play as scouts, suggesting titles for consideration that would stay under the radar, writing reports and providing sample translations to give a flavour of the book being pitched. Publishers have a great deal to gain by harnessing translators' passion, creativity and energy in the effort to discover new works and reach out to new audiences. Translators have been innovative in making use of social media to challenge the status quo and influence reading behaviours. One successful initiative is the Women in Translation campaign, begun by US translator Maytal Radzinski after she noticed the lack of translated titles by women on her shelves. In 2014, she compiled statistics on women-identified authors published in translation. To counter the low visibility of women writers, she launched Women in Translation Month in August 2015 to encourage and challenge readers to seek out translated texts by women. Using the power of social media, a Facebook group was created and translators from around the globe helped draw up a list of titles of must-read translated books by women writers. One contributor designed a logo and translators then spread the word to their local bookstores, providing them with the list of titles and the logo. Booksellers welcomed the initiative. Many of them had a number of the books in stock anyway, and they saw it as an innovative display tactic, which crucially brought customers through the door and stimulated debate. As a direct result of this, in 2017, the University of Warwick inaugurated the Women in Translation Prize for the best book by a woman writer in translation. And UK publisher and other stories pledged to publish books solely by women writers the following year. 
Translators of children's books have been energetic and imaginative in creating World Kidlit Month, featuring children's books from around the world, while Translators Allowed is a platform giving translators the stage to read from their work and whet readers' appetites for international writing. And there is Paper Republic, again a translator-driven initiative that turns the spotlight on Chinese literature in translation. Another area where practicing translators have a major contribution to make is in the field of translator training in universities. Courses are often theory heavy and understandably, academics are concerned with developing measurable criteria, whereas practicing translators often work intuitively like writers, which we are. So how do we reconcile the need for objective measurables with the notion of translation as a creative act? Students can have difficulty marrying theory and practice. Some will espouse one theory and apply it to everything they translate, justifying their decisions by referring to a specific theorist. But publishers have no awareness of or interest in theory. They want translations that will appeal to readers. And translators need to navigate that tightrope. Our role is to help students draw on theory as a useful framework while being conscious of the practicalities of operating in the commercial publishing environment. Translating is a solitary activity. For me personally, the sense of community among translators has created a family. Translation is my country. And taking part in public events, teaching and mentoring have contributed to my own professional development, as well as helping form the next generation of translators. The key words in all I have said are cooperation and collaboration between translators within the profession to enhance the status of translators and the quality of translation, between publishers and translators to enhance bibliodiversity, between translators and universities and between academia and the publishing industry to create a holistic ecosystem. That was Roz Schwartz, recorded by Anne Morgan and produced by Kona McPhee. You can find out more about Roz on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 363. Coming up in episode 364, in Poetry Break, Rebecca Goss and Julia Copas discuss classic poems by Amy Lowell and Charlotte Mew. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.